Now, you didn't actually think we'd let Valentine's Day pass without marking the occasion, did you? If you're a loyal London Love Stories listener, you might remember a promise we made to you at the end of Series 1. I think it had something to do with a little Valentine's special, if we were feeling really generous. Well, you'll be pleased to know we've kept to one half of the bargain, at least. Because we do have a special February the 14th episode for you, I'm happy to announce. Though it's turned out not to be quite such a little one in the end. In fact, the special guest we have for you today might just be one of the biggest names in London. Yep, it's the Mayor of London himself, Sadiq Khan. I've I've got to be romantic in private uh, in case my daughters cringe and get embarrassed. And I tease people with them when I say, yeah, we, we, hadn't, we hadn't arranged marriage, you know, when we were very young. Like, wow, really? Yeah, did you, you know? And then I, I sort of carry on the story. They say, yeah, we arranged ourselves, though. So you can get to the top by being nice to people, by loving people. Um, you know, those that have read, you know, Little Prince Machiavelli, you know, I'd, I'd rather be loved than feared. From The Standard, this is London Love Stories with Katie Strick. I therefore declare... Sadiq Khan to be elected as the new Mayor of London. It's been eight years since our protagonist Sadiq, then an esteemed human rights lawyer and parliamentarian from Tooting, was voted in to succeed Boris Johnson as the third mayor of our capital city and the first ever Muslim elected mayor of a Western capital, a position he has since described as the best job in the world. I grew up on a council estate just a few miles from here. Back then... I never dreamt that someone like me could be elected as Mayor of London. It was just a month before the EU referendum at the time. And in his two terms since, he's introduced the Hopper bus fare, written a book about tackling the climate emergency, and entered into a now notorious public spat with then-President Donald Trump. If somebody starts tweeting about me, A six-foot-three child in the White House. Can you let me know? But today, well, we're not going to talk to him about politics, or Trump, or unlimited bus fares. Unless they relate to bus-related love stories, of course. Because it's Valentine's Day. And it's not every day we have the Mayor of London in the hot seat of a love stories podcast. And on camera, in case you want to watch him squirm under the spotlight, at standard.co.uk. So buckle up and plug on in, because today we have a very special interview in which we're going to hear about the mayor's own love story with London. And we have a few little scoops for you, from his and his wife's go-to date spots to the surprising dating advice he gives to single friends today. Hi, I'm Sadiq Khan, and this is my love letter to London. Now, this episode's Winding of the Clock takes us back to the year that is 1970. Paul McCartney has just announced he's leaving the Beatles. Tory leader Ted Heath has just succeeded Labour's Harold Wilson as Prime Minister. And Aman Ullah Ahmed Khan and his wife Sarah Nisa Khan, a British-Pakistani couple working as a bus driver and a seamstress, have just welcomed their fifth child into the world at St George's Hospital in Tooting. They might not know it yet, but this particular son, one of what would eventually become a grand total of seven, was to go on to have a particularly unique relationship with the city they decided to call home two years previously. My mum and dad are incredibly weren't my father's passed away and were, were amazing people. So 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 my grandparents migrated from India to Pakistan after partition in nineteen forty seven. Really brave. 
big, big uh, sacrifice they made. So if you're a Muslim, you tended to move to Pakistan, and if you were Hindu or Sikh, you stayed in India, generally speaking. So they're really courageous people. My parents, incredibly courageous, courageous and brave, they travelled four or five thousand miles to come to London for a better life for themselves and their families. So they've travelled, I've got two generations of cars travelled thousands of miles. I've got nowhere, right? So, so, I, so I was born in St George's Hospital in Tooting. We lived on a council estate a mile up the road. Uh, my mum now lives a mile up the road this way. And all of us live within a mile, two miles radius of my mum. So we are, we've not moved anywhere, all right, compared to three generations of cars. I've still got vivid memories of, oh, I come from a big family, I've got six brothers, a sister, mum, dad, and we used to live on a council estate in Tooting, Wandsworth, Henry Prince's estate, and my dad, I don't talk about this much, was a bus driver, uh, but anyway, my dad was a bus driver, and he drove the 44 bus, and the route of the 44 bus was along the main road outside the estate, and uh, I've got fond memories of uh, two of my brothers and myself being on the top deck of the bus, so, that, so if you think about the front of the bus, double-decker bus, my dad would be below. In those days, there was no CCTV cameras, so the way a bus driver would see what's happening on the top was a periscope with a mirror. You'd look up at the bus driver, and there'd be a mirror, and you'd see at the top, and we'd be at the top looking down at my dad while he was driving, and he'd be driving around London, and we'd pretend to be driving at the top. I've got memories of going to Trafalgar Square, us climbing the top of the, the lines, and we're quite boisterous as boys, as you can imagine. How has your, if you picture London now, which you must do a lot in your job, what image comes to mind and how has that changed over the course of your lifetime? What, what do you think of London? I've always lived in London. There's only one year I didn't live in London when I was at law school and I lived in, just in Surrey in, in a place called Godalming. And so, you know, when I think of London, I think of the people I know, my friends, my family, my work colleagues, because most of the people I love are in London, they're Londoners. And so for me, the connection with our great city is not just the places, you know, Trafalgar Square or the great parks or the great culture we have, but it's what you do when you're there. So my fondest memories are of going to certain gigs with different people, or it could be going to certain restaurants with different people or being in parts of our city with different people. So when I think of London, I think of, you know, Londoners. Now talk to me about Tooting. So you were obviously born in Tooting, raised in Tooting, still live there today. So Tooting is the best part of the greatest city in the world. And, um, and not many people know this, but very soon after I became, I used to be the MP for Tooting before I was, before I was the mayor of this great city. But very soon after I was elected, uh, we heard this news, it was 2005, that there was a scientist at NASA who had found a, a new crater on Mars. I've never found before. And uh, if you find a crater, you get the pleasure of naming the crater whatever you want. And this chap had an association with Tootin. So you tell me any other places in London that has a crater named after it, Tootin does. I did not know that. Yep. And so <laughs> for me, Tootin is home. And so the story of Tootin actually is a microcosm of the story of London. Why do I say that? London is a capital city, but obviously we live on an island, and our island has had for you know millennia people arriving to the island and changing the demographics of the island, Anglo-Saxons, Normans, and so forth. And so Tootin, if you go back you know 60 years post Second World War, even go back before, uh, it's people arriving, and, and Tootin changing and evolving 
because of those new arrivals, whether it's the, you know, the Irish community, lots of my friends growing up were you know, Catholic Irish descent, West Indian community, Tamil community, uh, Pakistani origin, my parents are from Pakistan, Indian, East African, uh, more recently, uh, you know, Somalian, more recently Eastern European and so forth and so forth. And so Tutin changes as new people arrive. That's what makes it so exciting. And so, you know, someone like me who was spent a lot of time as a boy going to Tutin Market and Broadway Market, they, they're still there, but the sort of shops that were there before have evolved to newer shops. And, and that's the joy of Tutin. It's always changing. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are some things that are, that are constant. Sadiq was just a teenager, studying at a local comprehensive school in Tooting when he met his now wife, Sadia, a fellow Tooting resident, who was also being raised in the Islamic faith, and coincidentally was also the child of a bus driver. Like him, she went on to train as a solicitor, but that part comes later. So my wife and I uh, met when uh, I went to the boys' school, Ernest Bevin Secondary School, uh, which, uh, to those that we didn't feel this way but others thought it was a really tough hard school and Sadi went to uh, the mixed school uh, what we thought was the sort of Nandi Pambi uh, school um, for you know the boys when they were Nandi Pambi compared to us as the, the V back then we were teenagers so we met when I was in sixth form she was in sixth form and, and the thing about her school was there was a head teacher there called Mr Stapleton and at lunchtime Mr Stapleton would patrol up and down Wellham Road to stop the Ernest Bevan boys you know going to try and uh, I, I use the gentle phrase "court" uh, the, the Graydon girls, and so I managed somehow to. Uh, we sort of knew each other. I managed somehow to get around Mr. Stapleton, uh, and, uh, and so we started getting up when we were in the sixth form. Fell in love quite young. Uh, married when I was 24, and Sadi was 23. I was a trainee solicitor. Uh, Sadi was at, at law school, and, and I tease people. So when, when I meet, you know, I, I'm privileged. I get, I get to get to meet people who, you know, haven't spent time with somebody from my background, and so. I sort of teased them when I say, "Yeah, we, we hadn't we hadn't arranged marriage, you know, when we were very young." And they go, wow, really? Yeah, did you, you know. And then I, I sort of carry on the story. They say, yeah, "We arranged ourselves, though." That's there. There's also a rumor that he wooed his wife in a Croydon McDonald's, but he refuses to confirm or deny that part. You know, more franchises on the high street can be romantic with the right person. Anyway, fast food dates or not, it seemed to work. Sadiq and Sadia have been married for 30 years with two adult daughters and have racked up a fair few mutual interests over that time. Walking Luna the dog in London's green spaces, enjoying the best of the capital's food scene, shout out to Tooting Market, and going to see their favourite artists perform live. We've been to some great gigs. Uh, there's a great... So, so Sadia and I love Lionel Richie. I'm sort of, you know, sound corny, but one of his songs are, is our song. And we saw Lionel Richie play at Hyde Park. He was the warmth to, to, to Stevie Wonder. And uh, when, you know, Endless Love came on, I obviously sang to, to my wife, right? And, uh, and uh, as indeed Three Times Lady. And then the next day, as I was singing to Sadia, the next day there were photographs in the paper saying, you know, Sadiq's courting his wife and stuff. And my daughters were so embarrassed and so mortified. So, you know, I've, I've got to be romantic in private uh, in case my daughters cringe and get embarrassed. Can I ask which Lionel Richie song it is? It's your song as a couple? Endless Love. Endless Love. Yeah, yeah. I can do the, the Lionel Richie notes pretty well and <laughs> she can do the Diana Ross notes pretty well. In fact, he recently tried to pull off a grand romantic gesture by surprising Sadia with a date to a special, intimate performance by one of her favourite artists. 
though as many interviewees in this podcast can probably attest to, the reality is these kinds of gestures don't always go quite to plan. So my wife's a massive John Legend fan, and uh, so I knew John was going to play at Ronnie Scott's for a small gig for his mates and stuff, and I got wind. And so I thought I'd surprise Sarth and take her to, to Ronnie Scott's, not tell her it's going to be John Legend. And so I got it all sorted out, two tickets. And the day of the gig, and I didn't tell her, I said, we're going, we're going, we're going to have a meal. The day of the gig, Amara, my youngest, was back from university. And so Sarth goes, Look, I'm, I'm, Amara's back, I'm staying in. I said, like, oh, God, what am I doing? You know, the hassle I've gone to. And so I said, Amara, I've got a problem here because she's not going to go because you're home. And so Amara said, I'm not feeling well, I'm not going out. And so I goes, I'll stay at home. Oh man, what so uh, long story short I managed to get a third ticket for uh, John Legend uh, and they said we'll put another chair around the table so the trick was to get to Ronnie Scott's without her discovering John Legend's playing at Ronnie Scott's and so we're walking to the venue and there's a blackboard with John Legend for one night only sold out so I've got to walk in a way to cover the board so she goes in so she goes in it's all working very well we're sitting around the table so, so Amara's here so I sit and stuff and the idea was, you know, John Legend comes out and suddenly goes, wow, right? That's the idea. And, and by the way, Chrissy Teigen's over there. So I would hide John Legend's wife so she doesn't see Chrissy Teigen because that give it away, right? And then 10 minutes before John Legend comes on, it's worked to a tree. So Mara and I are looking pretty smug. We've surprised her mum, my wife. And um, the manager comes out and says, oh, Sarika, hey, you're a big fan of John Legend. I said, and then Sally, she was obviously very, very happy. She had a, had a great night. But 10 minutes more, it had been the perfect day. Well, I can't imagine Sadia was too disappointed when she did find out who was playing. Admittedly, it's been a fair few decades since our city's mayor was in the dating game. And a fair bit has changed. But what's his advice then? For single Londoners looking to find love in an age of apps, ghosting and tick box preferences. So I've got friends who are dating, uh, different ages who are dating and stuff. And, and I say be patient. You know, pe- people get a uh, big glass, glass half full. And I, and, I, and I worry, combination of Hollywood, even British films, this presumption that there's got to be the Thunderbolt. Uh, sometimes you're lucky, you get, you get the Thunderbolt in the first, the first time you see somebody. But often you can fall in love with a platonic friend. You can fall in love with a work colleague. You can, uh, you know, start dating somebody who you didn't think about dating. And so just be patient and be, be kind to yourself. Give it time and remember love can rear its head in the most unlikely of places. Whether that's at work or your flat share or even a crowded district line train, as just a few of our Series 1 guests can probably attest to. There are certainly learnings we can all take something from, whether we found romantic love yet or not. Let's take a quick break. This very special Valentine's edition of London Love Stories with Katie Strick will be back in just a moment. It seems our city's mayor is an old romantic at heart, just like his pal and recent guest on this podcast, rom-com king Richard Curtis. If Richard's listened to this or watching this, listen, I'm just uh, a boy speaking to a director saying please cast me in one of your films if you listen to richard's episode you might remember him telling us about those early years in his 20s in london when he'd wander along the side of the thames whenever he was heartbroken or upset or needed to think a feature that made it into many of his films so where does the mayor of the city go then whenever he needs to think or unwind or get his thoughts back in order i like running now and so 
Actually, I began running because of uh, the Union Standard. Uh, David Cohen, uh, the campaigning journalist, persuaded me in 2014 uh, to run the marathon to raise money for the dispossessed uh, fund, and I fell in love with running as a consequence of of, of doing that. So for me, running really helps. Uh, running around the commons uh, really helps. But the interesting, interesting thing is, is you know, and, and, and I understand what Richard is talking about, not necessarily being you know depressed or unhappy, but you do need to try and find time to just unwind and to just think and to reflect and so forth, and, and sometimes just to be grateful. And so I find the parks great. We've got a dog, we had a dog over the last five, six years for Luna. You know, walking Luna really helps. Uh, and so when I walk Luna, I deliberately don't wear AirPods because I think there's something about also, and I, I've noticed this more since the pandemic, appreciating more the sights and sounds of nature. It could be, you know, schools running or just the ambient sound of London, you know, cars going past or, you know, birds singing or, or you know, whatever it is. Um, uh, so I really enjoy, enjoy that as well. The river's a really good place to go. For those that don't live in and around the River Thames, whether you go right to the west, Twickenham, Richmond, which is gorgeous, all the way to the east, even to the barrier, and you know, you know, past Greenwich stuff, there are stretches of the River Thames that are just amazing. And a lot of it, uh, I, I suspect many Londoners don't know about whether you're on the south or north of the River Thames. And it is, it is just an amazing part of our city. Yeah, that was one of my highlights of London Marathon training, was just exploring new areas of the river. Speaking of the London Marathon, me anyway, it's one of the sort of most love-filled events that there is in the London calendar. You really just see so many examples. It? Yeah, it was fantastic. One of one of the highlights of my years in London. Yeah. Are there other events to you that are similar? I mean, do you agree about the London Marathon and are there other events, <coughs> London Pride, for, for example, yeah. or is it more the daily happenings? So what I tr- I've tried to do is Mary to try and bring people together. So uh, very soon after this goes out, we'll be celebrating St. Patrick's Day in Trafalgar Square with a massive parade. We'll be celebrating St. George's Day in Trafalgar Square. Very soon we'll be celebrating the Muslim festival of Eid in Trafalgar Square, the Sikh festival of Fisaki in Trafalgar Square. You mentioned pride. I'm really proud that for the last eight years, uh, you know, I've been the only mayor in history to lead the pride uh, march because I think our diversity is a strength, not a weakness. And so, you know, all those events I go to um, and an integral part of and we help fund. Why? Because it brings people together. And uh, I've met people, Katie, genuinely, who have fallen in love at some of these events, made great friendships at some of these events, but also had a sense of belonging. Completely, and it's great to talk about romantic love, but actually something I talked about with Richard again a lot was friendship and non-romantic love, and those events are perfect examples of that. Absolutely. Are there any other um, moments specifically that come to mind from your, your career so far as mayor? Just those real examples of non-romantic love and Londoners loving my neighbour. Oh, it happens all the time. Listen, I, I, I get to meet, uh, as you do in your job, people that you're, the public will never have heard of that do amazing things and do it because of love. Teachers, I mean, look, my, I say this without any equivocation, my teachers loved me. You know, that's why they pushed me, they encouraged me, they opened my eyes to things I'd never uh, thought of. And I know there are teachers who love their children now and really care about their kids. My mum was recently in hospital. She was in hospital for 11 days. Now, I'm not saying all the clinicians love my mum, but the care she received, you know, it couldn't be because of the remuneration those people get because it's not adequate in relation to the care she uh, uh, received. I meet every day people who love their jobs or love their work colleagues. And we don't talk about it enough. It's a very British thing. You know, we don't say, I love you, right? When was the last time to a work colleague you said, I love you, or to you know, you, you, your best friend you said, I love you and stuff. And, uh, but you do. And so, you know, I think what I've discovered the older I get, and I think, I think for me the transformation was going from having six siblings who were 
blokes, boys and a sister, to having two children who are both girls slash women. And, you know, so, so we now hug all the time, whether it's my, when, when I see my best mates, we, we hug, or work colleagues I hug, people I've not seen for a while I hug, because it's a way of showing love without needing to say, I love you. You've talked before about your mental health during COVID, and I think many of us can probably relate to those struggles during, during the lockdown period. How do you think that's changed your relationship with London now? And do you think that whole period has brought people together or slightly torn them apart? I reflect on that a lot, you know, um, because what I didn't realise before the pandemic is we do stuff that's good for us without realising it's good for us. What do I mean by that? So before the pandemic, I didn't realise that playing football with my mates, playing tennis uh, with all my best friends, going for a run, going out with my friends, going to restaurants, going to the office and seeing my mates at work. What I didn't realise is all of all those things are helping me, not just my physical fitness, but my mental fitness. Then during the pandemic, I couldn't do those things. The lockdown between March and July were arguably one of the worst periods of my life. But I didn't realize at the time, the reason why I wasn't feeling great, I had mental ill health, was because the things I was doing before were helping me have good mental health without realizing it. And so not doing it has made me cognizant of the fact I've got to do these things not just because I enjoy them, but because an indirect benefit is they're good for my physical health and mental health. So it's important to understand that. And so, you know, COVID was a really, really horrible time. But I've got a phrase which I've nicked from somebody else, which is never waste a crisis. And so this crisis, I think, has enabled all of us to reflect work-life balance, the importance of family, you know, the importance of doing things for the sake of enjoyment. Can those be examples of love in many ways? That that game of tennis, that gig, that... spot on, spot on. Let's listen. So, so there are things you're going to be doing. The way you know the chemicals inside our brain work is amazing, and whatever whatever chemicals they are, but part of that is love and affection. So I'm, I make a point, you know, of giving hugs to my male friends, right? You know, to colleagues and so forth, because that's a, a way of showing affection. Because you know, listen, you know, unless you're a lead character in one of you know Richard's films. It doesn't roll off the tongue, I love you, to, to somebody who's not, you know, your, your partner or, or your kids or, or your mum. But my, my kids, actually, funny story, my kids, years ago, you know, have sort of now started make, saying to my mum, from English and the first language, I love you. And so I wasn't, when we grew up, just, just a different, different generation, you know, it wasn't an everyday occurrence. My mum said, I love you, right? But now it is. And that shows the difference a new generation can have on the behavior of older generation and stuff. So I talked about my own experience of, you know, having best mates who are blokes, siblings who are uh, blokes, very alpha male environment, to the environment that, I, that I've spent the last 24 years in, which is very female environment, and has changed my behavior, I think, for the better. And I think the pandemic has led to more of us appreciating, you know, each other. Who is the most inspiring Londoner you've met over your time as mayor? There's been loads. Um, bearing in mind when this when this podcast is coming out uh, and the context of what I've been up to in the recent past, I think one of the one of the uh, most amazing Londoners that I've ever met. She's she's, she's changed my life actually. It is a woman called Rosamond Adukisi Deborah. And the reason I mentioned Rosamond and this time of year is uh, Rosamond's nine-year-old daughter Ella lost her life on February the fifteenth, and so she was nine years old. And uh, and the, sh- the short version of the long story is she died from uh, asthma, a a respiratory attack caused by air pollution. And so there's a direct link because of the work Rosamond's done for her daughter. We now know 
that you know air pollution that you can't see particular matter nitrogen dioxide nitrogen oxide you can't see this stuff but it makes you sick to the point where it led to Ella losing her uh, life now anybody's got family anybody's experienced grief will tell you how hard it is I, I mean to grieve grief is just so hard when you're a parent to lose a child it's difficult to quantify and to understand what that parent goes through when you're a parent who's grieving but then is campaigning trying to find out cause of death uh, the level of respect I have is just on a different level as a father of daughters that must have you know particularly run really, through honestly Kelly so the thing is I think so, so I, I was, I've always been you know ambitious when I was a lawyer um, when you have children it just changes your mindset uh, and so your values change. You, I think you become less. But I'm not saying you can't get here without having kids. So I'm not saying that at all. But it just you become less selfish, in my view. My my experience was I became less selfish. I became more grounded. Uh, I started thinking about things that I wasn't thinking about before. And without getting too sort of you know uh, Richard Curtis about this, um, you start thinking about what you can leave behind, about you know legacy, about what sort of role model you are, about the example you want to set. Uh, and it's difficult to explain because most of us, the love we have for our friends, our work colleagues, is conditional, right? You love your, your best friend because she or he is, there's a relationship. I don't want to say it's transactional, but there's a, it's, it's based on the condition of certain behavior. With your kids, it's unconditional. It's unconditional love you have for your children and stuff. And it's, it's quite scary, but it's quite brilliant as well. Uh, and so, you know, I love being a, a parent. I love being an uncle. I, you know, I love being a husband and a son. But I think of all the things I am, my favourite is being a dad. Hugging everyone we love, not just our families and partners. Saying I love you, not just showing it. And looking for love in our surroundings, the communities we live in, not just online. Those are the learnings our mayor has taken from his 53 years living in the city he's proud to call home. Sure, it might be his job to love the capital, but his musings on London will be familiar to many of us who live here. There's love in those exchanges we have in the local coffee shop every morning. There's love at the London Marathon, even if runners' faces might not be showing it every second. There's even love on a rainy Tuesday on the top deck of a regular London bus. So what does love actually mean then, to the man elected to love London and its people for the best part of the last decade? I think it's difficult to answer in one word. Love means respect. It means treating those you love how you would like to be treated. It means being patient. It means compromise. It can mean, in certain circumstances, obviously passion. It can mean uh, joy, you know. And hopefully, I show my love for people by my actions, not my words. By how I, you know, so you know how I treat people, whether it's my wife, my daughters, my family, my friends, uh, and I include, you know, work colleagues. And I, you know, one of the one of the things I, uh, I always say to people is, it's possible to, whatever you're in, whether it's journalism, politics medicine, law, you can get to the top by being nice to people, by loving people. Um, you know, those that have read, you know, Little Prince Machiavelli, you know, I'd, I'd rather be loved than feared. And that's it from this very special Valentine's Day episode of London Love Stories. You can watch my full interview with Sadiq right now at standard.co.uk and listen to more episodes from this series by searching London Love Stories with Katie Strick wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit follow so you'll be the first to know when we're back for Series 2. See you soon.